Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Nine months after many of them were driven from their homes in Myanmar's Rakhine state by army attacks, the one million strong Rohingya community in Bangladesh faces a defining period. A repatriation deal providing for them to return to their homes has been signed but not delivered upon. And now the approaching cyclone season poses a major threat to vulnerable refugee camps. My Irish Times colleagues David McKechnie and Kathleen Harris have just returned from a trip to the Rohingya camps in Bangladesh and they'll be talking to me shortly about conditions on the ground there. But first today we're discussing the outcome of the historic summit in Singapore between US President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Today is the beginning of an arduous process. Our eyes are wide open, but peace is always worth the effort, especially in this case. Chairman Kim has the chance to seize an incredible future for his people. Anyone can make war, but only the most courageous can make peace. Our Asia correspondent, Clifford Coonan, is in Singapore for the Irish Times, and he joins me now. Clifford, the, the handshake was firm. The body language looked very positive. The statements by the two leaders were very warm. Now, all of that's extraordinary, but I, I think I'd like to go straight to the statement signed by Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un to get your assessment of, of its significance. It essentially has four points, and I think maybe we'll take them one by one. So the first one stated simply, the United States and the DPRK, North Korea, commit to establish new US-DPRK relations in accordance with the desire of the peoples of the two countries for peace and prosperity. I think we can probably glide quickly over that one. It's, it's really a general statement of intent, isn't it? Yeah. And um, in a follow-up news conference as well, he was vague about when that would actually take place um, because he said it was still too soon. So I think that's one, as you say, a general statement. And then the second of four points, the United States and the DPRK will join their efforts to build a lasting and stable peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. Again, am I missing some hidden significance there? Or is that kind of more of the same, very, very broad and very, very vague, really? I think so. Yeah, that's a broad, a broad brush statement again. Now, the third point is probably the, the key one. Um, it, it says, reaffirming the April 27th, 2018 Pan Moon declaration, the DPRK commits to work towards complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Can you remind us first, uh, Clifford, that, that, that declaration that's referred to there, what was that? Well, that comes from the inter-Korean summit in Panmunjom in April, at which Moon Jae-in, the South, South Korean president, and Kim Jong-un agreed to, to work towards complete denuclearization. Since that, there's been a lot of questions about what exactly complete denuclearization means. Obviously, it would appear to mean the removal of all nuclear weapons from, from the Korean peninsula, but there have been some questions raised about whether the North Koreans understand it to mean that or whether they still want to hold on to their hard-won nuclear arsenal. So um, that's, that's been quite a, a, a thorny issue in, in, the last, in the last few days, particularly um, here in, in, in Singapore. But Donald Trump has just finished a press conference and he was extremely upbeat on it. So he basically said that you know, they had a significant arsenal, but he, he said that he knew very well what it meant. And um, so it's been one of those phrases that maybe it's not as, as ambiguous as people were fearing. But you touched on a point there, Clifford, a key point, really. I mean, that there hasn't been up to now a kind of any evidence of a shared understanding between the United States and North Korea on what denuclearization means. That's still the case, really, isn't it, after today's meeting? 
There is an element of it. I mean, in, in the press conference, um, Donald Trump, he was quite bullish on this. I mean, I know he's bullish on a lot of things, but he, he was saying that Kim did understand and, and he was said they had no idea how long the process would take. And he also said he got another concession for the, where they agreed to destroy a missile engine site. And so, you know, which is another element. And he said it actually, he said denuclearization is a long process and scientifically and mechanically. And, but he he did seem to indicate that 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 Kim understood that it would involve giving up the weapons, but and given that he said it, it means that his political opponents can use him again, use it against him if it doesn't happen. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, I think the there's it's less ambiguous. Maybe he tried to make it sound as if it was less ambiguous, but it's still hard to know because they haven't said exactly how many missiles they have and when they're going to destroy them and who's going to verify how that will happen. So while the statement, um, I mean, he was really pushing the, how, how great a statement it was, there's still um, ambiguity and there's still vagueness in there and a lack of detail. And yeah, and I suppose the other key word, I don't want to be too pedantic about it, but it says reaffirming the April 27th Panmunjom declaration. So in a sense, the evidence is in the wording itself, which is, they haven't really moved any further than they did after Kim met uh, the South Korean president in April. No, I mean, where they have moved forward, and it's significant, and by the way, you can never be too pedantic when, you come, when it comes to dealing with North Korean nuclear issues, um, but where they have made advances are that the U.S. has agreed to stop the joint military exercises. And this is something that has always been a major irritant to the North Koreans who see them as a dry run for invasion and is very provocative. And it's always been the chief reason that cited by the North Koreans why they have a nuclear program at all is because they're trying to protect themselves. There were also sort of vague security guarantees made as well. So this, it's um, in some ways, some of the conditions for denuclearization have now been met. And this missile engine testing site is, is, is another concession from the North Koreans. But it seems to me that today the concessions actually came more, seem to come more from America, uh, from the US. And, um, and as you say, the Panmunjom Declaration has only been reaffirmed um, and there haven't been any specific details on how that declaration is going to roll out. And when you talk to Clifford about concessions on the US side, what are you referring to there? Um, that they've agreed to stop the war games. Right, okay. Yeah, the joint military exercises, because they were uh, they were something very important, I think, to the South Koreans in terms of feeling safe and protected from the threat of the North, given that, you know, there's 28 million people in Seoul, just, you know, very, very close to the demilitarized zone. But there's, there was a feeling that the situation is less critical now and that they now have the ability to cancel these joint military exercises. Of course, Donald Trump being Donald Trump, he, he dressed it up as a way of saving money and saying they were very expensive because uh, there were flying planes in from Guam to go and drop bombs everywhere and then flying them back. And he knows how expensive planes are. And, but, the, but the broader message was that um, tensions have eased to the point where they can abandon these, these war games, certainly for the time being. And Clifford, just returning then to the statement signed today, the fourth and, and final of four points was that the United States and North Korea commit to recovering POW MIA that's missing in action remains, including the immediate repatriation of those already identified. Just talk us through that one. What's the significance of that? Well, this is about the remains of 6,000 soldiers who were fighting in the Korean War who have yet to be repatriated. And we are familiar with this from the Vietnam War as well, where one of the big issues was getting... Um, getting the bodies of those missing in action or dead uh, prisoners of war to getting them repatriated. And he said that he'd had a lot of contact from relatives looking for this to, to be a condition. So that's um, in some ways, not, it's, not the, it's not 
been the biggest issue in the in the nuclear talks, but um, clearly in terms of beefing up the statement, it, it looks like it's been put in there as a kind of a, um, to show that there were advances made on areas other than just denuclearization. Overall, Clifford, I mean, there, there are four points there, probably doesn't literally seem to amount to an awful lot, but maybe it's wrong to judge a statement like that literally. And I know there have been references to, for example, Richard Nixon's visit to China and how much that contributed to the opening up of China subsequently. Do you think in due course, will this meeting today be seen as a similar watershed moment? It's difficult to say. I think everyone was, be, was hoping for more detail in the statement, but you're right. I mean, these communiques are often very, very general. And in the news conference, he went into more detail. Um, they, they've said that, for example, economic sanctions will not be lifted until the nuclear program has been, they get verification that they are actually trying to, to implement the promise to, to denuclearize. And he said, you know, he said a lot of things about um, like Otto Warmbier, the student who died in, um, in North Korea while in custody, well, who became very ill and then subsequently died. He said that he will not die in vain. You know, he alluded to a lot of the sort of problematic areas that they've had. You know, he said that they weren't going to reduce troop numbers in the South, even though he wanted to. And he said that South Korea and Japan had agreed to contribute towards the denuclearization program. And then combine that with the, with yes, this, this as you mentioned in your introduction, you know, the body language was warmer. They, they appeared to be, um, they appeared to have very good talks and it seemed to go very well. So I think all of these elements kind of added together presents a picture of, of a positive, of positive developments. Um, so while the statement is a, is a bit vague, certainly the overall impression would seem to be that this was this was a momentous event. It didn't have the same sort of emotional punch in a way that the uh, the Pan Munjom summit had when when Kim stepped across the border. I mean that was as a as a piece of theatre was incredibly emotional, and, and all the Koreans in the room were you know wowed by this. But even at this today, when the handshake actually took place, there was a real sense of of, of history being made. It was it was definitely. You know, you could tell that this was, it, it looked almost surreal because they've been at, at such loggerheads and they've been insulting each other for so long and the, all that rhetoric and and this is three generations of, of, of North Korean leader has tried to bring about this moment. Um, and so in that sense, I think the fact that it's happened at all is, 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 is momentous. There's nothing in the statement about human rights. Now, as you mentioned, uh, the press conference there, Trump did a very long press conference and several journalists did ask him actually if he had raised the issue of human rights with Kim Jong-un. What did he say about that? Yeah, he said that he had discussed human rights and he he said he even, he was asked quite specifically about the hundreds of thousands of people in gulags and he said that as the situation improved, he was confident that the situation with human rights would improve. Now, this is the engagement argument that we've had in China for a long time. And, you know, you could argue that things haven't changed so much in China. But then on the other hand, in China, we have seen they have closed a lot of the re-education through labor camps. And so ultimately, maybe maybe there, it is true that if a country, you know, if there's greater prosperity, if the government is less afraid of its people, then, you know, there will be the human rights situation will improve. And maybe also the closer contact to South Korea will help that situation. So... Um, he said that it would be something that would be on the agenda, but he was also trying to give the impression that they couldn't do too much too quickly and there wasn't enough time to discuss details of denuclearization. And so they, they seemed like he was sort of saying they touched on a lot of topics, but um, but that the details would follow out. And I think he, he sees human rights falling into that category. 
And did we get any details, Clifford, at the press conference? Because it's not in the communique, but any details on what the timetable might be for this uh, process of denuclearization and what kind of verification might be put in place? He started talking about his uncle from MIT who was interested in nuclear weapons, John Trump. And so he learned a lot from him. And apparently it can take up to 15 years. But once you get 20% of the denuclearization process carried out, then it's very difficult to go back. So he, um, but he said they had no real idea how long it would take, but he did say that work was going to start immediately on it, that Kim Jong-un was on his way back to Pyongyang and that it would be one of the first things he did when he got back. And he'd received assurances on that front. Now that could, of course, just be bluster, but there is a sense here, having watched say, the six-party talks with, with Russia, China, um, the US, both Korea's and Japan, um, where people would just sit around a table and, and literally say nothing for hours. I mean, and previous efforts and previous talks, you know, there is a sense that there's this is something different because I think there, there's just, um, there seems to be more pressure there. Um, I think the fact that they can deliver a warhead now, they say they can deliver a warhead that can hit the US, really up the stakes in terms of putting pressure on North Korea. And, um, and in, it seems to be um, that, for North Korea, this is uh, this is a big a big deal for them. The front page of the of the North Korean media today had all these pictures of Kim Jong Un in 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 Singapore, um, visiting various uh, uh, hotels and sites and things like that. So um, I, there is a sense of this being something of being something different this time. The the, the term they never honoured an agreement before, but maybe this will be the first time, and uh, maybe there's enough international pressure now to really to really it off. And Clifford, before we wrap, I think we should mention the language used by Trump today was extraordinary. I mean, he described Kim as a very talented man who loves his country very much. He said it was an honour to be beside him. He said the meeting was fantastic. Now, this is a couple of days after he described the Prime Minister of Canada as weak and dishonest. Uh, I'm tempted to ask you, uh, has the world gone mad? But do you think the, the, the warmth of Trump's words towards Kim is something that will come back to haunt him? In other words, this meeting, you know, kudos to him for organising it, but did he need to go so far in praising Kim? Well, there is the question, because he's also been quite um, upbeat on Putin in the last few days as well. And um, yes, and he described Trudeau in those terms. I think if, if this doesn't work, I think this is definitely going to come back to haunt him. Um, it's, 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 it's outrageous in a way, you know, that when you consider that, you know, he was just, just been sitting with a man who within, in the last few months killed his brother, um, blew up his uncle with a howitzer. You know, this is, you know, he's... he's he has a record of, um, of, 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 you know, of tough form of government. It was interesting because he did address that whole G7 thing, but he basically just launched into an attack on Justin Trudeau. But he did sort of temper it a bit. He said, I have a good relationship with Justin. And he said, but he just thinks that there's no TVs on Air Force One. And he thought he could sneak in this, this uh, you know. The press conference <laughs> post G7. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right, the press conference. And then he also said that he had a good relationship with, with Angela Merkel and that the picture of, of the two of them sitting there frowning was not, was actually they were just watching something on the screen or something or talking, he said, was taken out of context. So he was trying to kind of play it down a bit and um, I think maybe row back a little bit from the comments, but he was still very robust on on wanting to go after the EU about its... Um, its trade deficit and but the U.S. trade deficit with the EU, um, he took aim at China a couple of times and um, yeah, so it was a fairly um, it was a fairly robust <laughs> um, 
way of, of trying to roll back the comments. You know, he, he, he said, look, we have a good relationship, but I haven't changed my opinion. OK, Clifford, well, an extraordinary day, um, a historic day indeed. And uh, I suppose it, it will take time before we see how all of this unfolds. But thanks for bringing us that uh, report from Singapore today. And now to that story about the plight of hundreds of thousands of Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. Few people can be unaware of the desperate situation these people find themselves in, having been driven from their homes across the border in Myanmar in an army purge last year. Now they face a potential new catastrophe, the onset of the monsoon season, which aid agencies warn puts many thousands of refugees at risk from mudslides and flooding. I'm joined in studio by two of my Irish Times colleagues, videographer Kathleen Harris and Deputy Foreign Editor David McKechnie, who have just returned from a trip to Bangladesh to view conditions there and hear more about the threat posed by the cyclone season. Dave, before we get into what you and Kathleen observed on your visit to Bangladesh, the story of how some 700,000 Rohingya Muslims were forced to flee their homes last year, it dominated news headlines for several months, but the story has somewhat dropped out of view in recent months. So maybe you could just remind us first, who are the Rohingya people and, and what happened to them last August? So the Rohingya uh, are, are a Muslim, uh, ethnic Muslim group from uh, Myanmar. And they, uh, 700,000 of them, as you, as you say, did cross the border last August. And I suppose the trigger for that is seen as this attack by uh, a militant group, a uh, Rohingya militant group on some army posts uh, in Rakhine. Uh, and the reaction to that was, was overwhelming uh, by, the, by the Myanmar military. They set about attacking villages, uh, rounding up people in villages, um, killing people, raping people. And all of these stories have, have come out in the meantime. And actually, there's some very stark evidence of what happened at that time. And a Reuters report from later in the year details in, in a kind of a, a graphical way some 400 villages that were burnt or, or, or several hundred villages that were burnt in an area stretching over 100 kilometres in Rakhine State. So, uh, so it's a kind of a vast campaign seemed to be underway. Uh, and the response of the, the people there, the Rohingya people, was to obviously leave their burning homes and villages and um, and hit the road for, for Bangladesh. Which is uh, across the border. And are, are they congregated essentially in, in, in one area around Cox's Bazaar, just over the border? Is that, is that right? That's right. There are there are some camps a bit further south um, in, in uh, Bangladesh, but there's about, there's over 700,000 in this one area that we, we visited, um, which is kind of broadly known as Kuta Palong. Uh, now, there are different names of different camps. They're all sort of grouped together. It's very hard to distinguish one from the other, but they, they're, they're named, I suppose, for the purposes of, of ordering and, and sort of, um, you know, practicalities. But um, Kuta Palong, I suppose, is, is, the, is the term most people use. Um, now, some of those are actually there decades. Now, a small number are there decades. Um, there's actually a, a family I spoke to in Ireland, a Rohingya family, who, who, um, who live in Carlo, uh, and they... His family has been there 28 years in these camps, and he actually spent 20 years uh, there himself. This is from previous waves of violence in Rakhine State. So, so there were already two, two more to, between two and 200 and 300,000 Rohingya in camps in that region. But obviously, this influx of 700,000 has completely uh, altered the landscape uh, and turned what were obviously kind of not exactly fantastic conditions, but has turned it into a, a new uh, kind of a monumental crisis. Because as you allude to there, the, the persecution of the Rohingyas didn't begin last August. But we're now talking, I suppose, primarily about the refugee crisis that unfolded last August. So, Kathleen, what were the conditions like? What did you find there? 
Massive and hellish are the words that immediately come to mind. I, I think the most striking thing when you get there is this, the sheer scale of the camp. I think there are 20 camps altogether, and some are more crowded and congested than others because they're more established, and others are m more Spartan, I suppose. But the area that they're in, um, this was a forested area. It used to be an elephant reserve. And as more and more refugees have arrived in the area, they've had to cut back all the, all the trees. So as a result, you've got this clay, this kind of brown, reddish clay. It's a hilly area, and it's all clay, and there's no trees. So it's completely exposed. It's really, really hot. And you have a mix of shelters um, that are basically built on top of each other. They're made out of kind of this bamboo lattice and, and tarpaulin, basically, bamboo and plastic. People put rugs down on the inside to make a floor. And other than people's shelters, you have a mix of latrines, you have water pumps, you have bridges made out of bamboo, you have various centers established by various aid organizations, you have the, the military, the Bangladeshi military have, have certain um, outposts there as well. So it's basically just this mega city that has been built um, higgledy-piggledy um, on this very precarious, hilly bit of land. Um, and if you... I mean, we're in monsoon season now. Um, when Dave and I were there, it wasn't raining while we were there, but looking at those hills made out of clay, you would imagine that if any substantial bit of rain fell on those hills, they just melt. And you've got these houses or shelters, very flimsy shelters, built on top of these hills, and you'd imagine them just sliding right off of those hills. So it's hot. Areas are quite smelly. Um, there's water running through the camps that are completely polluted. Um, you can see the dust. It's so hot and dry that you see the dust getting into the air. There's lots of respiratory problems in the camps that you would imagine might come from some of this dust getting into the air. So, yeah, they're pretty hellish conditions. And you mentioned there the aid agencies. Now, your trip um, to Bangladesh was courtesy of the Irish aid agency concern. Are, are the people there totally then dependent on aid agencies for survival or are they getting much support from Bangladesh, from, from the state? How are they living? It's really a combination of things. They are getting support from the Bangladesh uh, government. The army are there. They kind of run the camp, basically. And yes, loads of aid organizations are there uh, providing um, health services, food aid, crash education for kids. Concern are there dealing specifically with um, nutrition, malnutrition. Uh, they're testing kids, uh, babies, um, I think starting about six months to five or six years old. They're regularly weighing children and checking them for malnutrition, giving mothers, new mothers, breastfeeding advice. They're really, really trying to promote breastfeeding for good health, for a healthy immune system. So, And then they provide some food as well for, um, for young babies. So, um, and then you have food aid coming in. The food is primarily um, rice and lentils, and people do get fed up eating rice and lentils all the time. So there's some um, entrepreneurial spirit, I suppose, among the refugees as well. They'll take their food and they'll go off and sell it and try to get fish and veg maybe instead, um, try to diversify their diet a little bit. So there's some of that as well. And you also have markets in, um, in the camp. Um, where you'll see everything sold from fish and fruit and veg to toys for children. So how how that's going on exactly? There's some there's some trading going on with the local community and and people trading some of the aid that they get for other items. So there's some kind of um, yeah small small business operation I suppose going on in there as well. And Kathleen, another point worth mentioning is gender-based violence is a, an area of particular concern to agencies working in in the area. Isn't that right? Yes, yeah. Um, there's definitely a problem with gender-based violence in the camps. There have been reports of 
rape, sexual assault, harassment. Um, one of the women we spoke to while we were there, she is a field wor- a field officer with UN, uh, is it FCP? FPA. F- FPA, yeah, sorry. She's a field officer with the UNFPA, which is the branch of the UN that deals specifically with issues related to maternal health, family planning, and gender-based violence. And she was saying that in any kind of emergency response situation like this, you'll have gender-based violence. Um, but she was saying in, in, in this case in Bangladesh, what's happening is it's a cultural norm for women to stay in the home uh, during the day. So women will go out at night to use the toilets, to go and collect water. And it just so happens the way the camp is set up, people don't have their own toilets in their homes, obviously, so they do have to go out to these places. And they tend to be quite far away from their homes, and the camps are not well lit. There's not adequate lighting at night. So you have people going out, and they're at risk um, of harassment or assault, and there have been reports of this happening So women are afraid to go out, and so when they do, they face these kind of risks, but then if they stay at home because they're too afraid to go out, and of course they've been traumatized from their uh, previous experience in in Myanmar and gender-based violence there. So as a result, they're not going, and and they have issues with, um, there's lots of problems with sexual health, um, reproductive health, and so these problems are just exacerbated by them not being able to use the facilities at night and things like this. So um, that's a problem, and so much so that uh, the woman we spoke to, the field officer, said at one stage that they, um, they they give out dignity kits, what they call dignity kits to the refugees, and these include hygiene products and sanitary products for women, and they also include whistles. So uh, women are given whistles to take around with them in the camps at night. So that should tell you just how, how bad of a problem this is. And in addition to that, she was also telling us about child marriages now being a problem. Um, Women hadn't really been reporting them as a problem in Myanmar before they came to Bangladesh. They're more of a problem here now because um, it's a security issue. They think that if they get their young child, teenage daughter, married off, then they'll have protection. They'll have a husband, someone to look after them. So it's a security issue um, that's encouraging these uh, child marriages to take place. So there's a few different issues, but there certainly there certainly is um, a substantial problem with gender-based violence in the camps. How did you find it, Dave? I mean, you've been, as deputy foreign editor, you've been publishing a lot of stories, commissioning stories about these camps for the past six months. How did the reality compare to the mental picture you had before you went out? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, um, there has there has been some very good journalism from that area, so you know that has painted quite a, quite a picture. But um, I, I suppose the, the interesting thing for us is we well we were there at a, at a time of when it was dry, um, dry and hot, and as, as Kathleen said, just to, just to try to you know imagine those conditions um, in the rain or in 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 the, with mud with you know with with uh, flooded flooded areas. Um, it's really it was really kind of an act of imagination. Try to try to see it in a different way, you know, um, because I mean, some of the new areas of the camp that we visited where more recent arrivals have come, you know, they were there. They were like less um, densely populated. Some of the huts were well built. They obviously had a little more time to lay out those areas and a little bit more planning went into it. And actually, you, you'd actually say, well, they've done a decent job here. It looks quite organized. You know, the huts are obviously very hot. They're windowless. Um, these are not like uh, nice conditions, but perhaps some of those conditions were on the face of it, not as bad as we may have expected. But then, as I say, you have to use your imagination and consider what those areas would be like, you know, a few weeks from now. And actually, 
they are built on steep hills. They are built on a, on a landscape you could you would never possibly consider for to build a refugee camp on. Not to mention one with seven hundred thousand people in it. So I suppose um, so. Some of the organisations, some of the some of the industriousness taking place. There was a lot of people carrying bamboo poles. There was a lot of work going on on roads and 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 sort of culverts for for drainage and all this sort of stuff. And there was trucks going in with this stuff. And actually, I suppose it struck me that. You know, you might actually consider that this is that this looks like a, a sort of a, a you know the sign of a burgeoning community, but actually these are these are emergency measures taking place. They're not signs of kind of progress. They're actually signs of the opposite. They're the signs signs of of, of desperation. You know, they're trying to trying to build up the camp um, to a, to a, in a sufficient way that 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 uh, not too many people will be killed in in, in terrible conditions. Sure, and I want to come back in in a moment to the, the threat posed by the monsoon season because that was the main the purpose, I suppose, of your trip. But can you tell me about some of the maybe individual stories you came across, some of the people you met and what their, what kind of stories they had to tell you? Uh, yeah, um, there was there was some, some very interesting uh, people we met. Um, one woman struck me, uh, just sort of obviously going over everything when you come home, but one woman, uh, re- really kind of a, a moving scene, if you like, she's quite a striking woman. And she um, she's a 30-year-old woman and she has five children. And she had a, a baby at her breast when we were uh, speaking to her. Um, now, this baby was, was, was probably the most malnourished child we saw on, in her time there. She, yeah, she, it, was, it was a little girl, seven-month-old girl. And uh, she was really, it was hard to look at her, actually, to be honest. And she had a lot of blotches on her skin. And she actually is not the daughter of this woman we spoke to. The, she has five children herself. Um, but her sister, her 20-year-old sister, uh, died uh, seven months ago, obviously, at a, three days after the birth of bleeding and uh, complications. So she, her, her parents, are, their parents are quite old, so she, uh, they, they chose to adopt the child. But the child does not have enough food because she cannot breastfeed her and they don't have enough money, really, to... to to feed her and the other five children. But at the same time, this so it was a tragic story, really. But at the same time, she was very stoical um, and quite a, um, you know, impressive woman. Also, uh, she told us about her, her journey from from uh, Myanmar and, and in, a, in a way that sort of resonated with all the stories we told, really, people coming out of their homes to find that the village has been burnt down. It is worth saying that the people who are there, the refugees are very much working with the aid organizations that are there on the ground. They're not just there receiving aid. They're also there learning. They're being trained to do various things. You have um, uh, healthcare workers who are there training them in areas of mental health so they can act as counselors for their fellow refugees who've obviously been traumatized and have gone through horrific uh, situations. Um, you also have uh, just even with the monsoon season coming up, you've had you had aid organizations training them how to uh, bolster their homes. Uh, so people were given these kits to bamboo poles to kind of fortify their houses and put put up sandbags and things like this. They were all taught to do that themselves, and they go and they they do it themselves and they help other people in the community um, do those things too. We met a woman, an older woman who is a birth attendant. Um, she learned how to uh, deliver babies, both vaginally and through C-section, back in Myanmar. And she does that now in the camp, in people's homes, in these these very flimsy, very um, uh, simple homes that people live in. And she shows up and with a knife <laughs> to do these C-sections. And, uh, not, you know, she, so there's people who... Uh, 
I mean, yes, there is aid, and of course, these people need aid. Um, they need more than that they're than they're getting. But at the same time, they're very much um, have taken on jobs within the community that that they've they've built there. Okay. Then tell me about about the monsoon season. This, what are the specific concerns being raised by aid agencies like Concern? I mean, we're literally talking about you mentioned these people's their homes are in very vulnerable situations on hillsides and so on. Are we talking about the threat of? of people's homes being washed away in the mud? Yeah, mudslides is certainly one of them. Disease, uh, general disease like diphtheria and, and uh, watery diarrhea and um, cholera. There is uh, obviously flooding. Um, but I, I think I think probably the one that seems to be frightening the people most is, is, is the situation of the homes. I mean, they have reinforced a certain number of homes and they have relocated maybe 20,000, 30,000 people, but about 200,000 are considered at risk. Uh, in the camps, so you know, even even some of the better built huts uh, of bam- but they are are still made of of bamboo and tarpaulin, and and this is an area that ha- this is a region that has suffered from some catastrophic cyclones um, in recent decades, killing tens of thousands of people. So, um, and these these are people in regular homes, obviously. So, I suppose you know it's it's a number of things but but uh, literally homes being washed away from these hillsides seems to be one of them and also of course the the roads in the camps are quite you know uh, when we were there they functioned reasonably well but we were we both saw and were involved in um vehicles going off the road and getting stuck in the side of the road and getting pushed um so in much worse conditions in muddy conditions these roads won't, roads won't function and so any of the services that say concern or other aid agencies have in the camps they have you know these centers that people can go to for their services um, people won't be able to access them because they won't be able to travel around the camps if, if the camps are are muddy and you know whatever so if they have young children that need feeding malnourished children they won't be able to get to the camps so that's one of the issues so people won't be able to perhaps access services as well as well as the the general health risks one of the people we spoke to while we were there um, is Gillian Boyle with Concern. She's a logistician. She has been with them as a logistician for 13 years, and she's worked all over the world. Um, she's brought in specifically as someone to respond to emergencies, and she arrived in Bangladesh uh, to specifically deal with the monsoon situation. And she's worked everywhere, and she, she was recently in the Central African Republic. She's been in Haiti, and she said when she showed up in Bangladesh, she was absolutely horrified to see the camps. Horrified was the word she used. And um, she's going around now kind of setting up mobile tents um, so that uh, they can reach, aid organizations can reach areas of the camp that might not be accessible anymore because of the monsoon. And um, she's there on the ground just uh, trying to figure out how exactly the camp should cope um, with slippery roads and people not getting access, not being able to access the services they were able to access before. And what kind of measures can be taken to alleviate the situation? I mean, are we talking about large-scale evacuations or can something be done to make people's homes more secure? Well, it seems that they've already got to a point where that certainly isn't going to happen. I mean, they, they can't really evacuate the people and, and they don't really have any more land that's better, you know, that they can move them to in, in, in any kind of time frame that's reasonable. So, plus there's a political dimension, of course, um, with the Bangladeshi authorities, um, 
you know, they don't want, they, one of the issues is they don't want any more permanent structures to be built for understandable reasons, I suppose, from a political perspective. This is regarded still um, as a temporary emergency by the Bangladeshis who have, it must be said, um, re- reacted remarkably to this crisis and, and the army has done a hell of a lot of work there and the local people have reacted very well to this crisis. Um, but at the same time, it is an issue that they cannot build more permanent structures. So they're stuck on the land that they're on. So they have to sort of make do. So they're trying to improve roads. They're trying to reinforce some of these houses. Um, they're trying to, you know, say concern, uh, for instance, are, are trying to use mobile tents um, for the, to continue their services in different parts of the camps. So they have these centers that they, ha- that they work from now that might not be accessible in the event of of, of um, some catastrophic uh, weather event, and so they have they're, they're going to have mobile tents that they can move around, and and people can access them from from those points. So um, it's really just sort of um, battening down the hatches in general and trying to to, to cope with it. But there's there's certainly no um, silver bullet. And Dave, what does the immediate future hold for the Rohingya refugees? Because, you know, there was a repatriation deal done between Bangladesh and Myanmar. That seems not to have happened, you know, to allow them to return to their home. So um, the future looks quite bleak for them, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, there, there was a deal a few months ago, and then uh, which, which certainly didn't get off the ground. It only literally, you know, a handful of people went across and, and stayed in these kind of um, temporary camps in, on the Myanmar side of the border. But um, there was an announcement about 10 days or so ago that the UN agencies and Myanmar signed some kind of outline deal on returns. Now, it did look like a positive, but certainly just looking from, from my perspective, it didn't look as though it had any any of the kind of arrangements in place that will actually, in the short term anyway, see any returns taking place. For instance, they're not offering citizenship to the Rohingya as part of this. They're only offering uh, something called uh, national verification cards. Um, and anyone we spoke to said they wouldn't return to Myanmar without citizenship, which has been denied them for decades. So um, so that's one issue. Um, I suppose what you might say is, it, I mean, the UN does hope to get into Rakhine on the back of this um, this deal, this provisional outline deal, um, because there have been no UN agencies there, or none of the main ones, since since what happened last August, to examine and, and, and get some evidence and see what happened. So it actually looks like there's some progress with the UN, but overall, they're going to be stuck there, it seems, for the foreseeable future. Um, and, you know, I suppose the other condition that they, that they would want is, is safety in Myanmar. And I don't think anyone could say that that is guaranteed at this point. There's one other there's one other sort of um, factor, which is the Bangladesh government has also has built a, a kind of a, a sort of slightly sinister um, development in the last few months has been um, building a camp on this remote sandy island in the Bay of Bengal, um, which only appeared 20 years ago out of the, out of the sea. And uh, they've been building camps on that island, and, say, and and they do say that they will move 100,000 refugees to this island um, in the next few months. Um, now, they said it would be voluntary, but um, nobody seems to know how that would work. And it does seem like, I don't know whether it's some kind of um, gambling, you know, uh, some kind of um, card that they're trying to play or have in their back pocket, but um, it's, it's a slightly sinister development. You couldn't imagine any people really volunteering to, to go to this island. So it doesn't look like they've anywhere to go, certainly in the foreseeable future. So it's certainly a, a bleak picture. Well, thanks, guys, for coming in to talk about it today. That's um, Kathleen Harris, 
and David McKechnie and your report and, and video on your trip to Bangladesh will be on irishtimes.com this weekend. That's right, yeah. Yes, thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.